If we haven't had the privilege to meet, my name is Joey. I serve as one of the pastors here at Journey ICC. And it's a pleasure for me to welcome each and every one of you again to this gathering. Every time we gather together, our hope is that God continues to build us up. He continues to mold us and to form us in the way of Christ. And the last couple of weeks, we've been going through a series we are calling Restoring Goodness, that the world and ourselves need to be caught up in this vision of God of what is good. And so we partner together to lead and to form a life full of restoring goodness. And so we've been looking at Nehemiah as our archetype to show us what a life of goodness looks like. And what does it mean to partner with God on that journey? And so we started out a couple of weeks ago looking at Nehemiah being called from the citadel of Susa in Persia, where he was. He goes, meets the king, and he tells him, I need to go back to Jerusalem to my people to help them to do the work that God has called them. He goes back to Jerusalem, examines the condition of the city, and they embark on this project to rebuild the wall. And as they begin to do that work, they find out that there are obstacles that they have to overcome. There are challenges from without. Sanballat and company are against the work of Jerusalem being rebuilt. But there's also injustice in the city. People are taking advantage of each other, and the people need to rise up to enable the work to be complete. Last week, Bucho got us to the finish line of the rebuilding work of the wall. And he told us about how each person was standing and building next to one another. That there were, there were people building perfumers, building next to people who are builders, next to priests, next to governors, officials, that each of us has a place in God's rebuilding work. And if that was the end of the story, the book of Nehemiah would be complete. Because he went to rebuild the wall and the wall was done. The brickwork was finished. But what we discover when you go and open up your scriptures, open up to the book of Nehemiah, you find out that the work of rebuilding the wall ends in chapter 6 of Nehemiah. And there's seven more chapters to go before the end of the book. What's that about? There's seven more chapters after they finish rebuilding the wall. The brickwork is done, everyone is happy, but there is more. A few months ago, my son uh, started asking us to buy him a bike with pedals. We'd bought him a balance bike, you know one of those bikes you run where that doesn't have any pedals, so we'd bought that for him about a year ago, and he's gotten very proficient at it. He cruises on the streets of our neighborhood with it. And now he noticed that all the other bikes in the neighborhood are different from his. They have pedals. His doesn't have pedals. So he came and said, Daddy, bike with pedals. And you know, like a good Kenyan parent, we did what all good Kenyan parents do. What do you do? You don't buy the child the, the bike when they ask for it. You wait and see if they really want that bike. So we waited. And then he kept coming again and again and again. And finally, you know, we were like, you know what, I think it's time for us to get him that bike. So we went to the shop. And like good Kenyan parents, you don't buy him the, the size that he's at. The child will grow and outgrow the bike. You buy him two sizes bigger. 
uniform, two sizes big. Kiatu, two sizes big. Some of us have not outgrown that. You're still buying clothes that are big, too big for you. Um, please check yourself. Um, but then we went to this bike shop and the owner was like, how old is your son? We told him that our son is three years old. He's like, this is the bike for him. I told him, no, give me this one for five years old. So I got the five-year-old bike. But then he said, before you go, you will need something if your son is going to be able to ride this bike. And so he got these small wheels that are attached to the back of the bike, training wheels. I'm sure all of us have seen them. And he attached the training wheels onto the bike and he said, you know what, now go with it. Um, your son will have an amazing time. And I took the bike home and Caleb was excited to see the, the bike. But remember, he wasn't ready to ride it. And so the training wheels were very important to help him learn to balance, support, and get stability as he was learning to ride the bike. Where is this story going? In the same way, Nehemiah chapter 1 to chapter 6 is the training wheels of God's rebuilding work. You see, God wanted to rebuild the hearts of the people. But he knew it was not going to be possible for him to rebuild the hearts of the people to reconstruct their lives on the inside before they have something on the outside to help them to feel safe and taken care of. That it was possible for the wall to be up, but for their lives to be down. Remember, they had been exiles for 70 years. Some of them didn't even know the language well. And so God was very intent on making sure that he had created the right environment to get the people to the work that he wanted to do. So Nehemiah, beginning chapter 7, all the way to chapter 13, is the story of how God rebuilds the lives of the people on the inside. Because the work on the outside is done. And because we've been talking about this Nehemiah story for a couple of weeks, we decided, you know what, we're going to do a sprint finish. We're going to cover chapter 7 all the way to chapter 13 in two weeks. Uh, so this is second last part. Next week we cover the finish. Uh, are you ready? Sprint finish. Today we're going to cover Nehemiah chapter 8 all the way to chapter 12. We're going to be jumping a lot. So hang in there, stay with me, lean in. And we're going to see what God does. Restoring goodness is not simply what happens on the outside of their lives, of, the, of our lives, but also what happens within it. And so beginning in chapter 8, we see God beginning, going about the work of reconstructing the lives of the people. The verses will be up on the screen, but you can follow along on your Bible, on your phone, if you have that with you. So, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. We're told, all the people gathered together as one in the square before the water gate. The, whole wa the wall has been constructed and they're gathering at one of the gates. And they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the law had commanded for Israel. Nehemiah takes a bit of a backseat. Ezra, who had come 13 years before Nehemiah came to rebuild the wall, had started doing some work rebuilding the people spiritually. And now Ezra comes back into the foreground, Nehemiah takes a back step. And we're told, so 
on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men, women, and all who were able to understand. Notice who God thinks should be rebuilt on the inside. That the work of our hearts being reconstructed is not just for a particular group of people, it's for all of us. It's for men, it's for women, it's for children, anyone with understanding. It's for college students, it's for young professionals, it's for married couples, it's for people in every season of life. That's who God thinks needs to be rebuilt, reconstructed in their hearts. We jump to verse 5 and 6. It says, Ezra opened the book and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, all the people stood up and Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down to the ground and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Ezra takes this position before the people where they are able to see him and he starts reading from God's word. In verse 3 and 4, which we just skipped, we're told that Ezra read from the book of the law from daybreak all the way till noon. Daybreak till noon. How many hours is that? Six hours. At this point, I was reminded that... Uh, after meeting Bucho this week and studying this scripture, we are deciding to change our service times. Starting next week, we will be gathering in this church from 7 to 1 p.m. Uh, for one service. Everyone will be joining together. No, no, when you know I'm doing jokes. Some of you are excited about that. Um, but the people gathered together and they heard from God's word. And the most interesting thing in verse 3, it says, Everyone listened attentively. And then it continues. Nehemiah, oh sorry, Ezra is standing with this godly man and I'm filling in the gaps and with this group of Levites who are among the people. And in verse 8 it says, they read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving it meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Remember who these guys were. They'd been in exile. Some of this was foreign to them. Some of them had been born and they'd never heard the book of the law being read. They'd grown up in an Aramaic world with the Persians. And Ezra has brought them, Nehemiah has brought them back to Jerusalem and they're listening to a Hebrew. And so all of this is very new for a good number of them. But also, remember in their midst, there's children, there's small groups of people are trying to understand that's their posture. And so we're told that Nehemiah and this group of Levites, that while Nehemiah was reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, there's this group of people walking around, sitting next to people, standing next to them, asking them, do you understand what's going on? Is this making sense? What is all this creation about? I don't understand. And there are people giving understanding to this reading of the law. And then something surprising happens to the people. We're told that people began to sense a deep emotion in them. That the people got caught up in grief. In verse 9, 11, 8, verse 9, 10, and 11, we're told that the people started to grieve. 
the people were weeping as they got to understand what was being read to them. For some of them, this was the first time they were hearing what God's design was. For some of them, they are beginning to look at the situations in their own lives and they are seeing places they've gotten to dead ends. They are hearing God's purpose. They are beginning to come to terms with the identity of who God is in their lives. And this breaks their hearts. They begin to sense a deep conviction inside of them that we've not been in the place that we are supposed to be. We've not been seeing things clearly. Our perspective has been warped. That instead of the fabric of our life being woven by the design of God, that we've been drowning in a fashion of our own making. But then Nehemiah and Ezra come to the people and they say to them, do not grieve, do not weep. The fact that you are gaining understanding already means something. It means God is at work in your life. And they say to them, rejoice instead. What we want you to do is to go home. We want you to celebrate. We want you to go get choice food and drink. In the original Hebrew, it says, go get mandazi and chai. Uh, and then have a wonderful party together. Because... Because now you are beginning to understand what God's design is for you. And then the rest of chapter 8 closes with the people taking part in a festival that they hadn't done in a long time. Camping is good for your soul. Go read there. And then it goes on. Three weeks later, Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 1 to 3, it says, on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting, wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. What's happening? We're told that the people of Israel stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They separated themselves from the others. And where they stood, they, they read from the book of the Lord, of the Lord, their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and worshipping the Lord their God. Are you seeing a pattern? They read the book of the law for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and worshipping the Lord. Now they read, they see, they're beginning to get understanding. And as their hearts break, they posture themselves before God in confession and lament, saying, God, we have missed. We've written our own script. Something is warped. The brokenness that we are seeing outside in our world, the brokenness that we are seeing inside of us, we come to confess before you. And Nehemiah chapter 9 from verse 4 to 38 is the longest recorded prayer in scripture but it's also the most Bible-saturated, rich prayer of confession and identity that you could ever read. That would have to be a whole different sermon. But when they finish reading this, when they finish confessing their sins, when they begin to see and to pray and to hear their lament, that out of their reading and out of their confession, what happens is they decide to make a commitment together as a people for the kind of life 
that they are going to live. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 38 says, In view of all this, the people, we make a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders and the Levites and the priests affix their seals to it. The people commit to say, you know what, we're no longer going to continue as we are. What we're going to do is we're going to start over. We're going to make a fresh start in the way that God designs. And all of chapter 10 is the people making different commitments about what God had pressed in on their heart as they were confessing and lamenting. Nehemiah chapter 10 verse 30 says, We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the people around us or to take their daughters for our sons. Their act of confession turned them to commit to reorganize their marriages, family, relationship, the way they viewed sex, and how they were to interact with each other. Verse 31, when the neighboring people come to bring us merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working on the land and will cancel all debts. You see, people had started to get smart around what God had instructed because they didn't want to obey the Sabbath fully, they thought, you know what, as long as we are not the ones who are selling, buying the things that are being sold, as long as we are not the ones who are doing the trading, see, it's okay if we buy. Like, it's not, we are still keeping the Sabbath, but like someone else is the one who's selling to us. Them, they don't follow the same rules. And so they, they started getting smart, but this time, in their confession, they realized that even in the areas of compromise, in their work, in their business, how they were handling people, how they were handling business transactions needed to change. And then beginning verse 34 all the way to verse 38 talks about how they turned in their action towards generosity and justice around God's house. Verse 38 says, we commit, we will not neglect the house of our God. And so the people got together and they said, the work of partnership in building God's kingdom is our responsibility, not someone else's. And this was the rebuilding of the hearts of the people. Notice all of that was an inner work that was going on because the walls were already done. And then the inner work happens for the people. And this is what I want to notice. I want us to notice for us in our context today, here and now. I want us to notice two things that we can apply and take home. Number one, notice how the people received God's word in their lives. In Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 1, we read that it was the people who called Ezra and told him, bring out the book of the law of the Lord so that we can hear what God has to say. That the community had this posture of hunger and desire and attention to hear what God had for them. That they'd cultivated inside of themselves this place that they were saying, you know what, I don't think I can run my life without knowing how God's design and God's purposes 
for my finances look like. I don't think I can run my life without knowing what God's design for relationship looks like. So bring us the law. And so the, the people come with this posture to receive and to hear God's word. We're told that when they, when they heard God's word, their first words to God's word were amen and amen. That let this be as you say, God. Let it be as you say. You know, one of Jesus' greatest critiques around the people in his hometown was how they were slow and reluctant to receive him and his words. In Matthew chapter 11, we're told a story where Jesus went back home. And when he got home, the people at home looked at him and they went like, this guy is the carpenter's son. We know his dad. And we're told that the people had very little faith. And because of that, what happened? Because of that, Jesus healed only a few people in his home. And no big miracles were done there. That there's a posture we can have in our receiving where we have a Nazareth type of heart. A heart that is slow and reluctant. A heart that is of little expectation. When we walk through the gates here, coming to hear God's word, when we open up God's word in our own homes, or when we hear it in our cars on our way to work, or when we make time for worship or for praise or for prayer, we can come with a heart that's very slow to receive. But notice how the people of Jerusalem post-exile came to hear God's word. They came with a posture that says, bring it. Let it come. I want to lean in and get all that I have from God's word. And so the people receive with a posture of expectation. They receive with hunger. But notice that they also receive with an intent attention to understand what they were being taught. That it wasn't just flipping pages and turning, but they were reading with a desire to understand, paying attention to what was there, and also giving it time in their schedule and in their day. If I was to ask you, what can hold your attention for six hours straight? A few years ago, during the COVID season, my wife and I were uh, a bit bored. And so we decided, you know what? Um, we have been watching the Marvel movies one after the other. Why don't we have a Marvel movie marathon? We're going to watch all the way from Iron Man 1, Baka Endgame. Endgame alone is three hours, two minutes. To say the least, it took us a few days to get through the entire catalog of Marvel Phase 1. Nothing against Marvel, please just watch it. It's okay. But there's an intent posture that we can give to the things that are important in our lives that says, I am giving this time and value. And we see this in the hearts of these people. That if we are to become a community here at Jani ICC that is growing and maturing, 
in the design of God for his purposes to restore goodness to the world, we will lean in and give attention to the scriptures. Not, not just to read so that we can be known for people who are of a book, but to read to understand what is for us to apply. Jesus, in another moment in his life, made this analogous relationship between our hearts and soil. And he said our hearts are like soil and that it's possible for us to prepare ourselves or to prepare the soil of our hearts to receive. That sometimes our hearts are like rocky soil or soil that has weeds, that there's things that distract us, there's things that pull us away from receiving the fullness of all that God has for us inside of us and that we need to constantly evaluate what is the condition of my heart in my posture of receiving. And then number two, we're told that the people responded. The people responded first in worship. We read chapter 8 verse 5 and 6 and we're told that when the people heard Nehemiah Ezra reading from the book of the law, they bowed down and began to worship God in their hearing. And essentially, essentially, all of worship is saying that, you know what, God, I take my life and the design that you have placed it becomes the template, it becomes the paradigm, it becomes the blueprint through which I evaluate every experience. It becomes the filter for what is right and wrong. It becomes the thing, the standard to which I want. And they established God as the center of that. But we're told that the people also spend time in confession and lament. That the people were grieving when they began to understand God's word. I don't know about you, but I don't think I'm in that place. Sometimes I read God's word and I finish and I'm done. I don't grieve enough when I read God's word. That there's a place for us to ask ourselves with all the brokenness that we see around us, with all the brokenness that we see in our own lives, that there's a brokenness we can bring before God where we can say, God, I want you to search me and see inside of me what my motivations are. I want you to see why I am acting, living the way that I am, and I want you to redirect and reorient my path. We spent an entire time looking at the scriptures through a series earlier in July but the confession of the people led them to lament before God of the condition that they were seeing in and around them and the condition that they were seeing inside of themselves. And so they spent, they spent time saying, God, restore us, rebuild us, heal us. Those wounds that I've been carrying, that baggage that I have, would you allow me to place it down and would you replace it with your peace? 
that thing that's been holding me captive, the way that my life has been knotted, that anxiety that I've been feeling about the work that I do, that humming noise that keeps me up at night. God, I want you, I want to place it before you in confession and lament. And so the people cry to God. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 16 and 17. We're told that the people looked back at the history of where they had come from and all that they saw was how God had been good and how they had constantly been finding ways to escape that goodness. It's almost like they were actively trying to avoid living in the design of God. And they say, and it says in verse 17 of Nehemiah chapter 9 that the people, our ancestors, refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked in their rebellion and appointed a leader to return them to slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. You see, when the people were grieving in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9, 10, and 11, Nehemiah and Ezra call the people back and they tell them, do not grieve, this is a holy day. This is a holy day. We want you to celebrate because Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10, do we have that on the screen? It says, Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to the Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Notice what he tells them. He tells them not to grieve because the joy of the Lord is what will hold them up. That God's grace and his goodness has a capacity to empower you more than any guilt or shame that you feel about where you are. That God's goodness, the joy of God embracing you in his love has a capacity to transform and to bring goodness to the world more than anything we could ever do out of our own performance and effort. And so Nehemiah says, don't grieve. Rejoice because the joy of the Lord, that God looking down on you and seeing you, his beloved you who he is well pleased with, you who he desires to redeem and restore, gives you strength. And so we are told in Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 48, that Nehemiah seeing all that they had done rebuilding the wall and rebuilding the hearts of the people, calls the people together and he says to them, let us now dedicate the wall. And they got two choirs to stand at the top of the walls and to sing over the people God's blessing. And to say to them, rejoice. 
And we're told that the people on that day offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. God had poured into their hearts a reassurance that he will not desert them. That God will not desert you. That he will not abandon you. That his presence is not far from you. That his spirit draws near to you that you can draw near to him. And we're told that the women and the children also rejoiced. It was a big party. It was a good one. Kids had trampolines and bouncing castles or whatever version of those things existed in that day. And that the sound of rejoicing could be heard far away. Far, far away. That out of the lives of the people, it began to ripple out this sense of joy. And the question for us is, because we've encountered God, what do people experience out of our lives? In the circles that you find yourself in, out of your reading and understanding, out of your lament and weeping, is there then an overflow of joy, a spring that does not dry out where people can tap into the joy of God. And if this was where Nehemiah ended, we could have said, well done, good stuff. But there's more, one more chapter to go. See you next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you because of your goodness. Thank you because of the reminder that our heart posture is to be one of receiving with expectation and great hunger. So for all of us here, Lord, would you raise our level of expectation? Would you raise our level of expectation in our homes when we read your word, in our marriages, in our lives, in the work that we do for what you desire to do in and through and for us? that we may come ready to receive from you. And Lord, we pray for response out of our lives. Lord, where our lives are disintegrated and fragmented, would you put us together? We confess. We say, remake us, O God. We worship. We say, you alone are worthy. And Lord, we rejoice. We rejoice in the joy of your strength, in the joy of you looking down on us to make us strong in the places we are weak. So help us, O oh God. Would you pour out your spirit to remind us these things in the difficult moments of our week, in the places where we are feeling not strong enough, would you remind us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.